Hey, good morning, church family. Great to see you this morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's great to be with you to continue this series that Pastor Tim started last week um, concerning the special donation for our missionaries serving in Louisiana. You can actually give online, and if you go to efreedb.org slash give online, that's the, the link to go to if you're interested in helping support them during this difficult time. And when you go there, you can select Give to Missions, and then for the, for the specific fund, you can select Other, and just write in the notes that it's for the shooties in New Orleans area or in Louisiana, and we'll be able to send those gifts to them. And as she mentioned, you can also just write Shooty or... Um, that's the name of the missionaries we have serving there, or uh, New Orleans, something that we can know that, that it's for them on your memo or on your envelope and drop it in those offering boxes in the back. Also, before we jump into our study this morning, you might have noticed I'm wearing this lovely shirt that says, to know Jesus and make him known. That's because our volunteer artist here at our church who makes so much of the beautiful artwork you see, he made these shirts for us for our church. And so you can grab one outside at Guest Central today for 10 bucks at the table out there, and we hope you like it. Um, I think it's a pretty cool shirt. So just wanted to let you know about that. And before we continue our study, why don't I just ask God one more time to be with us? Will you join me in a brief word of prayer this morning? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to be your church, to be your hands and your feet in the world, Lord, to encourage each other close by and far away. And thank you this morning, God, for giving me the opportunity to read a few of the verses that we're looking at this morning and talk about this idea of studying your word. We ask that you'd guide us, be with us, encourage us today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do we live our new life as followers of Jesus? When I was growing up, I did not get along with my siblings but then as I got older, they became my best friends. Maybe something similar has happened to you. And I can remember the exact day when I started becoming friends with my little sister. I was sitting at home reading a book when my sister came in the front door. And I hadn't seen her in a long time, maybe a couple of months. And she came in and she went from room to room in the house looking for something. And, and then she finally left. And the whole time that she was there looking for things, I was just reading the book I was reading. But when I heard the door close and she left the house, I looked up for the first time. I'd never said hi to her or anything like that. And I just suddenly felt this sense of conviction, almost like God was saying to me, Luke, you could do better. You could have a relationship, a friendship with your sister. And maybe you've had experiences like that in life, where you're just sort of going through life, living the way you've always lived, and, and all of a sudden, it's like God just convicts you and says, hey, I've called you to live better than that. I've called you to be more like me in this specific area of your life. And that shouldn't surprise us, because God has, in fact, called us to live new better lives. He gave us a new life in Christ, and then He calls us to live that new, better life. The problem is, of course, that sometimes we get complacent. 
Sometimes we just get comfortable in our old habits, living the way we live, and we forget the privilege and the opportunity of following Jesus down this path of new, incredible, better life. And one of the areas that he invites us to live our new life in is in the area of being honest with each other, just sharing the the frank truth with each other when we talk to each other, which sounds nice. Yeah, hey, just be honest. But the reason why we need to be reminded to be honest, to be frank in conversation with each other, is because before we met the Lord, it was quite convenient for us to use dishonesty in a large part to kind of hide from each other a little bit, to sort of shield each other from seeing certain parts of our lives that we wish were different. Maybe, maybe when we're talking with other parents and we're a parent, we wish that we were more effective parents in certain areas. So much so that when we talk about parenting with the other parents, we might actually try to make it sound like we are better parents in those areas than we feel that we actually are, even if it means distorting the truth a little bit, even if it means not being completely honest about the details of what life is like in our home as we raise our children. Or maybe you would like people, you would like to be a more spiritually disciplined person than you are. And so when topics of spirituality come up, you sort of take the opportunity to lead others to believe that you are more disciplined than you believe you actually are in your spiritual life. Or perhaps you would like to be more successful in your career. You'd like to have a larger, more impressive source of income. And you'd like that so much that when you're talking with other people, you may even lead them to believe that you are, in fact, quite a bit more successful than you are. Because quite frankly, we like to be thought well of. We like to be admired and respected by each other, which isn't a bad thing. But when we allow that desire to be less than completely honest with each other, God reminds us in His Word but that's one of the areas he doesn't want us to get complacent in. It's one of the old habits of our former life. He doesn't want us to forget. He's invited us to change. He's invited us to resist that temptation, to cover up certain details of who we are and hide, and instead to have the courage to simply speak the truth. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning for our passage of Scripture that we're going to look at. And so, uh, if you want to read along, you can turn there, but we'll also put those verses up on the screen. So, Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll start reading in verse 25 of chapter 4. And as we do, listen to how God invites us to live our new life by speaking honestly with each other. He says this, starting in verse 25. He says, <clears throat> Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. He says, having put away falsehood, speak the truth with one another. 
Now, when we read that, you might wonder why I made such a big deal about this new life that we have. I mean, after all, if you were to open the book of Ephesians and put your finger down and start reading here, kind of just sounds like another rule in the Bible. Kind of sounds like this is a rule, and if you keep reading, there's some more rules that come after that. And it kind of, you might think that the Bible's full of rules, and here we've just got some more rules. And if you don't follow these, then surely God will be upset with you. And so why would I stand up here and encourage us that this is not just a bunch of rules, but this is a beautiful passage of God reminding us to live out the new, free, beautiful life that we've been given in Christ? And the answer is because of the literary context. In other words, we don't just read this one verse and try to figure out the meaning of it, but ideally when we study the Bible, we read the surrounding verses, the verses that came before this one and the verses that come after this one, And what we realize when we do that is all the way starting back in verse 17, Paul, who wrote this letter, is describing the new life we have in Christ that's different from the old life that we had before he put his spirit in us, before he gave us this new life. And when we arrive to this passage, we're able to understand it so much better. And in fact, that's a great tip for any time you want to understand a passage in a New Testament letter like this one, is to read the surrounding context. That's helpful for any book of the Bible, but especially for letters. Because when you open up a letter and you start reading it, you typically don't start in the middle, read a line from your friend, and then sit back and go, I wonder what they meant by that. Of course not. Because every word in the sentence gets its meaning from the sentence that it's in. And every sentence gets its meaning from the paragraph. And every paragraph makes sense only when you read it in context of the entire letter. And so it's not only helpful to read the paragraphs that come before and after the verse you're looking at, but as often as you're able to, it's actually really helpful to just read the entire letter from beginning to end. Because that's how it was meant to be read, as a letter that you sit down and read and trace the argument as it goes. My my family has a friend who's in prison. And whenever we receive letters from him, he's been in prison for years and he'll be there for years. We open those letters and we read every single word so carefully, so attentively, wanting to read not only what he said, but what he must have felt as he penned those precious letters to us. And that's sort of the way the the recipients of these letters would have received them. They would have received them, and they would have read them from beginning to end. And as you do that, you might even make some notes, and you might even begin to try to outline the letter to sort of see how the argument of the letter unfolds and develops. Because then when you zero in on a single word, or you zero in on a single verse, it's going to be a lot easier to understand what that verse, what that word means when you've read the entire letter. And so that's one way that's helpful for reading New Testament epistles to understand any particular verse you look at. And another thing that's very helpful for understanding the epistles is understanding the historical context. So the literary context is really important, 
what, what do the verses before and after this verse say, but the historical context can be just as important. Meaning, the more you can learn about the author and the recipient of this first century letter, the more you can learn about what even prompted the writing of this letter, the easier it will be able to understand why they're saying what they're saying in the letter. And a book like this one, if you have a good commentary, you look to the front of it and you'll read lots of interesting information about the historical context. One of the things you'll learn is that Paul wrote this letter from prison, likely in Rome, and that he wrote it to a collection of churches in this province. So he wrote more generally about the implications of the gospel for our lives. And one of those implications of the gospel for our daily lives, he says, is that we speak with honesty to each other. We speak, we speak the frank truth to each other. And we don't twist and distort the truth out of fear of actually being known and seen for who we are by each other, which is easier said than done, I think, because all of us would like to be thought well of, admired, respected, so much so that it can be really tempting to not be fully honest with each other. I had a, a friend in his early 20s who attended this party, <laughs> and he didn't know he was going to be meeting his future wife at this party. So when he showed up, he and his friends thought, you know, we don't know anybody here. What if we just make up some hilarious stories about ourselves? And so he met this uh, beautiful woman at the party and um, didn't know that she would be his future wife. And so he decided to tell her that he went to UCLA and he was studying this incredibly difficult subject. And as the conversation went on and on, he weaved together this, you know, articulate story of what an impressive person he was. And the whole time he was thinking, I'll never see her again. Doesn't matter. Um, of course, what happened was not only did he get her phone number, but they kept communicating. And eventually, she would ask him details about this extremely impressive life he had. And he had to come clean and say, hey, look, we ma I made all that stuff up. I'm sorry. None of it was true. I don't go to UCLA. I don't study astronomy. And um, we look back, of course, now, and, and it's it's kind of a hilarious story, but I think even that, what you might call a joke, does belie something very sincere and true about us, and that is that we want to be thought well of. We want to be looked up to in our parenting, in our career, in our spiritual life, so much so that it's difficult at times to have the courage to just share who we are and where we are in our lives. But it's absolutely worth it because you don't need me to tell you that when our kids see us lying to hide and cover up what we think about ourselves, our kids learn to lie. When our friends catch us in a lie, they might not always say it, but we can tell that they are hurt. We can tell that the lovely intimacy we share with them has been damaged. And when we're not completely honest with God, when we try to shield the truth about ourselves from Him, we feel distant from Him. We feel a sense of shame and conviction about our dishonesty. And the cool thing is, 
that we don't have to lie to try and be more impressive. Because the reality is we already admitted that we're not very impressive when we came to Christ. All of us who followed Jesus at some point said, you know what, God? I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I'm made in your image, but I've fallen short of, what, of who you created me to be. And God, I need forgiveness. And of course, we believe that God gives his utter and complete forgiveness to us in that moment. That he shares his new life with us and washes away our sins and says we're no longer sinners. That's not our identity, even though we still struggle with sin. He says you're a saint. You're a child of God. And you're completely accepted and welcome into my presence. And so what do we really have to prove? I mean, what could be better than being children of God? And when we realize that there's nothing better we could possibly be than who God has already made us, it helps us to let go of that need to be more impressive than we feel we are. It helps us to realize that we don't have anything to prove and that maybe we can even have the courage to just speak the truth with each other, even when the truth is that we're still learning, we're still growing, we're still struggling to live out this new and incredible life that God has given us. But make no mistake, He's given us this new and incredible life. And when you don't have anything to prove, when you know who you are and that you're loved and accepted by God, not only does it start to become easier to just be honest with each other, but you might notice that it also becomes easier not to lash out in our anger. That's another habit of our old life that Jesus came to give us a new life in. You see, we have this comfortable habit, if you're like me, when you get angry, when you see an injustice against you or someone else, to simply respond the first way that comes to mind. And usually, that's to respond in a way that's hurtful and cutting and harsh towards the person who's made us angry. But you may have also noticed that after coming to Christ, God invites us to change the way we respond. That when we feel that anger washing over us, that sense of injustice and wrong, and we want to just respond, that God is saying, hang on a second. Maybe response is justified, but I've called you to respond in a way that doesn't cut and tear down and destroy, but in a way that breathes hope and encouragement and builds up. We're going to keep reading this paragraph that we're in here in Ephesians, and as we pick up in the next verse, which would be verse 26, 
listen to how we God challenges us to live our new life by not sinning in our anger. He says this, starting in verse 26. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. He says, be angry, but don't sin. In other words, you're going to see things that you feel are unfair, and you're going to feel your blood start to boil. But here's how you can leave your old habits behind and live that new, beautiful life that God has given you. When that happens, don't sin. When that happens, don't just take the first response that comes to mind if it's not godly. Instead, take a better response. Think to yourself, first of all, is a response even justified? Because we all know that sometimes when we're angry with someone, it has nothing to do with them, doesn't it? Sometimes when we're filled with rage and we want to cut, it's just actually because we're dealing with something completely unrelated, isn't it? And we're angry at everybody. Other times when we're angry, we take a deep breath and we realize, you know, there is something to this. I don't feel even when I take a step back that this is fair or right. But sometimes we can let it go. We don't have to address every offense. That would be exhausting. And still other times when we fill with rage and anger, we realize that a response is appropriate. We say, you know what, as far as I can tell, I want to address this. And God says, great, address it. Address it in a way that is designed to build up, encourage, and make the world a better place. Not the way we tend to respond when we're living our old way of life. Our old way of life is you get angry, and the first option that comes might be call them a name. Not that I've ever done that. Maybe you get angry, and you just say, you are such a jerk. And of course, they're going to think about their life, and if there's even one thing they, they've ever done that wasn't what a jerk would do, they're going to say, no, I'm not. You're a jerk for saying that. Or, or another way that we that we get in a rut of responding when someone uh, makes us feel angry or, or we feel angry is we want to repay the wrong instantly. We want to settle it and make it right. Maybe you're driving down the freeway and someone cuts you off and you fill with rage and you call them a jerk, but then an opportunity opens up. And by opportunity, I mean a lane. And you realize that you can stomp on the gas pedal, speed up, cut them off, and settle the score. Just so they know that you shouldn't cut people off when you're driving on the freeway. So we try to even the score. We try to repay evil for evil. Another old habit that we had was that we would uh, get angry with someone and we'd turn into a wall. Have you ever done this? You just turn into an emotional wall for hours or maybe for a couple of days. 
and you either don't speak to them at all or you're completely emotionally withdrawn. And you hope that they hit that wall around your heart over and over and over again so that it hurts really badly so that they learn their lesson not to make you mad. But then God convicts us. He reminds us if we're in these types of habits that he's invited us to live way better than that. He's invited us when we feel anger to not simply grab the low-hanging fruit and cut and tear and destroy those around us. But instead to ask ourselves, if a response is justified, how can I respond in a way that Jesus would want me to respond? I heard a podcast of this therapist who had an extremely uh, difficult person come to him for therapy. And when I say difficult, this person came into therapy with him week after week, and his clothes were filthy, and he smelled like urine. In fact, he said the smell was so offensive that after he would leave his therapy office, they would have to air out the room for hours and wash the furniture. Not only that, but when he would try to talk to the guy, the guy would want to talk to him about how he wanted to go out with the therapist, leave the meeting to get drunk, and to rape women together. You can imagine how this guy showing up, smelling, bringing up this topic week after week was so offensive and abrasive and disgusting for the therapist. And he didn't know what to do. He said, I was at a loss because lots of other people had tried to work with this guy. So he said, here's what I did. He came the next week and I said, hey, we need to talk about our relationship. He said, I really appreciate you showing up consistently week after week. And this is what I'm passionate about, getting to know people and working with them. And I'm enjoying getting to know you. But he said, I don't know if anybody's ever said this to you before, but you smell like urine. And the smell is so strong and offensive that after you leave the office, it takes hours for us just to get rid of the smell. And in fact, we have to wash the furniture wherever you sit. And the topic that you bring up, I'm not sure if anyone's ever told you this before, but that is extremely offensive to me, that you think that I would want to dr get drunk with you and do this activity. Now, you might, you might wonder how this guy would respond to that. Well, the therapist said that the next week, he came back to therapy, but believe it or not, his clothes were clean, he didn't smell, and he didn't bring up the topic of conversation that he'd been bringing up. And the therapist on this podcast went on to say, he said, usually what happens with these difficult people who are just especially offensive and abrasive than most of us, that anger everyone around them, he said is people either confront them in mean and vicious ways or they 
experience them. They feel offended. They feel angry, but they stuff it down, and they just run away. You can't blame them, really. He said neither of those responses ever give the person an opportunity to grow or to change. And when I heard that, I can't help but think of, of our calling as followers of Jesus, who encounter each other constantly and feel offended on some level, feel that the other person's abrasive, feel that we've been treated unfairly. And it'd be so easy to respond the way we've always responded. But God says, think about how you can respond in a way that lifts up, encourages, and builds up. And a big part of that is just being humble when we respond in those situations. Just acknowledging that we've been forgiven of a lot too, and that we're objects of grace. It's kind of like the passage that says, take the log out of your eye before you go to help your brother take the speck out of his eye. It doesn't say, don't try to help him. It just says, take the log out of your own eye first. And so we get our own sin in perspective, and we approach those types of situations not with an arrogant attitude of self-righteousness, but with humility and with grace, positive and respectful in those conversations. Because we are objects of grace ourselves. God has shown us grace when we've been people who haven't acted fairly or right. Even when we've been people who have stolen, taking what didn't belong to us on some level somewhere in life. The, the temptation that we all have at times to take what doesn't belong to us, it often comes from this fear that if we don't take every opportunity to get what we can in life, that we'll be shortchanged, that we won't have everything we want and need, that God won't take care of us if we simply receive in life what He provides. And that's true whether we're working at a company or there's a product that the company has clearly said is to be destroyed, but we realize that no one would know if we just took those extra products home and sold them for a profit. It happens when we're filing our taxes and we feel like we could just be a little dishonest and keep more of what we already feel belongs to us. It's what drives the temptation even when we deal with each other in friendships and acquaintances. When we see an easy, small opportunity that won't be caught to not really repay each other in the way we said we would. And in each circumstance, we're kind of saying to God, I've got to look after myself and take what I need in life or I won't have enough. I won't have what I need to enjoy and be taken care of in life to the degree that I feel I ought to be. But the blessing of knowing Jesus and being called to live this new incredible life is in part the blessing 
of feeling that temptation to take what isn't ours and to resist it. We're going to read the next verse here. It's verse 28. Verse 28 in this paragraph here. And as we read it, listen to how our new life, God calls us to live our new life by not taking what doesn't belong to us. He says this, starting in verse 28. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that they may have something to share with anyone in need. He says, don't steal. And then he kind of flips the whole temptation on its head. He says, instead, do the honest work you can, and not only don't steal, but then trust God enough to take some of what you have and give it to those who have less than you. What a radically better way of life. To believe that not only is God providing for you in godly ways enough, but that not only does he give you enough when you simply trust and obey him, but he'll give you so much that you can turn around in utter contentment and joy and pass on the blessing of God to others. There's the famous story of God, uh, Jesus walking and meeting a tax collector and, and, and calling him. And this tax collector is so overjoyed that he's been called by the Lord that he promises to repay back even more than what he's stolen from others and to give away a portion of what he has. And it's a beautiful story when we read it in part because every follower of Jesus knows on some level the beauty of being content with what God has given us and giving away the excess because we feel so blessed and so provided for by God. And that's the challenge, the reminder that he gives us here about our new life, is that we don't need to steal. We can leave that old way of life behind and be provided for by God and share with others. Of course, that, that doesn't mean that that's going to always be as easy as it seemed for that man when he just joyfully gave everything back. Sometimes it's a, it's a real challenge for us when it hits us in our everyday lives. And I don't know what area of life for you could be tempting to take what isn't yours right now, but I remember in my life as a teenager, I worked at a retail store. And there's pressure when you work there for your college years to get raises, to keep the job, and to get promoted. And the way to do that at the retail store I worked for was to sell the minimum line that you needed to sell of a financial product that they offered. The problem was that I quickly realized that the way they determined the minimum line you needed to sell was based on what the average employee was able to sell. Only problem was that the way nine out of 10 of the employees sold that much was by being dishonest with the customers. 
It was by fooling them into signing up for the product that they didn't know they were signing up for. A product that would affect their credit, a product that could affect their financial future. And so there I was, working in a retail store, wanting to keep my job, wanting to get raises, wanting to get ahead, and realizing that the way to do it was to, you might say, steal the dignity of these people, steal their financial progress and independence so that I could get ahead, so that I could get more money and more reputation and more promotion. And the pressure was intense and very real. And I don't know, it, it, was, it was present for me, but how much more so for the colleagues I worked with who were immigrants from other countries, who I would see coming through with their infant children on their breaks and before and after work. And I don't know what um, area of life where you're facing a difficult temptation like that to, through dishonesty, in some way take what isn't yours from another person. But it can be very difficult. And I don't think this passage is saying it's not difficult to stop those old habits, those old ways of living. I just think it's reminding us that we've been given a new life and we're invited to live in a way that is so much better. After the door slammed and God convicted me about my sister, the next time she came over, probably a few months later, as she went out to her car to throw, throw a few more things in the trunk, I followed her out. And this time as she went to get in her car, I tried to give her a hug. And I think she thought she didn't know what was happening because she blocked me. It was very awkward. I hadn't hugged her in years. But a few weeks later, we had dinner together. And a few weeks after that, we were texting back and forth throughout the day like old friends. The Christmas of that year, I received a gift from her. I opened up the gift that she gave me for Christmas, and it was a CD. They still had them at this time. And on the cover of the CD was a photograph of me. It took up the whole CD. It was of my silhouette sitting on a rock watching a glorious orange sunset on a hill in Diamond Bar. She'd secretly obtained the photo of me without me knowing. And she said, all year long, I, I heard songs on the radio that I thought you might like on Pandora, and I saved them, and I put them on this CD for you. And of course, when I opened it and saw it, I was choking back tears because I just felt so loved. Shortly after that, she moved away to New York. And before she left, she stopped by the house, especially just to take a photo with me before she left to New York. When she got to New York, she, had a, she was having a blast at her new job in New York City, and she made one real friend, a best friend in New York. And the two of them, they, this person was a native, so they were showing her all around, and she was enjoying uh, getting to know New York City when unexpectedly her friend died. They found him unresponsive in his apartment, and she didn't know why. 
And shortly after, the door slammed that one day, and I realized I could be friends with my sister. I got a phone call from my sister in New York, all alone, this great big city, the one person she knew dead. And she just sobbed on the phone with me for an hour. She didn't really make much sense, but in between the sobs, she'd say things like, I don't know anything anymore. And I was able to be there, a friend of my sister, in a dark season of her life. And it was such a blessing. And it isn't always easy to turn our backs on the old, comfortable habits of our old way of life. But I think this passage is reminding us that God has given us a new life, and it's a far, far better one. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for all of the reminders that you give us throughout the Bible, Lord. We need to be reminded a lot of the blessings of knowing you and walking with you because, God, it's not that we don't think it's awesome to know you, to live for you. It's just, God, we get distracted. We get complacent. We get comfortable. And we forget sometimes what a blessing it is to be disciplined enough to do the hardest things in life, to put to death our old habits, and to live the new and better life you've called us to live in every area of life. And so, God, we just thank you for this reminder, and we thank you for the opportunity to stand in a moment and to worship you and to praise you, God, for all you are and all you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.